leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Broad Institute has emerged victorious in a battle with researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, over patents covering breakthrough gene editing technology that allows scientists to easily and inexpensively alter genetic material with precision. Last month, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office ruled the patents held by the Broad Institute relating to certain aspects of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing did not interfere with those being sought by UC Berkeley researchers. We spoke to Kevin Noonan, partner and chair of the Biotechnology and Pharmaceuticals Practice Group of McDonald, Bowen, Holbert, and Berghoff, and founding author of the Patent Docs blog, about the decision, what it means, and to what extent it resolves patent issues regarding the gene editing technology. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about the gene editing technology CRISPR-Cas9, the recent decision by the Patent Trial and Appeal Board in a battle over patents between UC Berkeley and the Broad Institute, and and what it all means. Perhaps we we can start with the technology itself. What does CRISPR-Cas9 allow you to do? Okay, so this is originally found in bacteria. And with many things in molecular biology, bacteria have developed ways to rearrange, reassort their DNA. Uh, think of it as their immune system because they get infected by viruses like everything else. And properly done, it can be manipulated, that system, to essentially edit DNA. So if you want to take something out of the genome, uh, rearrange it, that sort of thing, uh, it gives the researcher the ability to do that. Now, as someone with a, a long view of patents in the biotechnology space, Put the CRISPR patents into context for us. How big a deal are they? What what was at stake in this fight? How, how valuable might these patents be? Well, I think that the sort of history of molecular biology and biotechnology patents that have gone hand in hand has been an understanding of and with an understanding of manipulation of genetic material. You know, if you cast your mind back 30, 40 years ago when you had the first restriction enzymes that could actually cut DNA. Uh, specifically in ways that bacteria do it, and, and now we can do it because we can isolate the enzyme. That led to the first round of cloning um, in, in the mid-70s, and in the 80s and early 90s, the, sort of all of the, or many of the miracle drugs, uh, erythropoietin and PPA for heart attack and human growth hormone, things like that, insulin, were all made using that technology. And usually in amounts that were useful. You know, there, people have isolated the proteins. 
um, in small amounts, but you could make a drug out of them, and here actually now you could. Um, the Human Genome Project uh, was the other way. They just sequenced everything and figured it out. And, and all along the line, you had different technical achievements, uh, most of them sort of chemistry, biology, um, that, that manipulated uh, DNA in ways that could be uh, made into or to produce uh, some sort of a therapeutic or a diagnostic reagent. This is, this is more of the same, but different because it's a little more powerful. And I also think we have to keep in mind the context. You know, uh, we know a lot more about DNA today than we knew about it 40 years ago. And so now it's just the, the latest in a tool that will enable people from in, in anything, from yeast to man, for example, essentially, to be able to, to go in and do this sort of, think about it, DNA surgery. What exactly was the patent trial and appeal board asked to decide here? Well, now this has changed. People need to keep in mind that, that as of three years ago or so, four years ago, now we're like the rest of the world in that uh, the person who gets a patent on something is the person who gets the patent office first. So it's first to file, and that's true all over the world. It was not true here until a few years ago. A few years ago, up until a few years ago, it was first to invent. So the first person to invent something was the true inventor and was entitled to get a patent on it. The situation here is that the Broad had filed um, several patents, specifically directing its use of CRISPR to eukaryotic cells, uh, plants and animals like us. Um, the, the University of California had a, a more general method that could use this CRISPR technique with anything. And the claims, according to uh, the patent office initially, uh, overlapped in a way that the possibility existed there would be two people having patents on the same thing, and that was not permitted. So what was what happened is an interference was declared. If you think about interference, they overlapped and they shouldn't have. Um, and the patent office had to decide, the patent trial and appeal board were asked to decide um, who was the first inventor, who deserved the patent. Um, it didn't work out exactly that way in terms of the, the, the decision, but that was what they were asked to do. Uh, did, did UC Berkeley actually initiate this interference trial? Or? Well, the, the thing about the way that it works is that the patent office has to initiate it. However, you can do, we used to be able to do what's called provoking interference. You can um, present the evidence to the patent office to say um, you should declare an interference. Uh, it's ultimately the patent office's decision. And every patent that's granted goes through a process where before it gets granted, the patent office makes sure there isn't a patent out there already that is that is uh, directed toward an overlapping invention of this nature. And I, I won't say anything perfect, but they do a pretty good job of, uh, of catching them. And so the office can do it on its own, or in a case like this where one of the parties can suggest to the office that they should, and in this case the office took took the suggestion and declared the interference. And what did, what did the patent office decide here? Well, one of the things that Broad did, you have to realize that the, the Broad did is one of the things you can do early in interference is you can file a number of motions with permission from the board. And one of the motions that was that the Broad filed was one that, no, in fact, you made a mistake. There really isn't an interference here. And, and so they asked the board to, to do what it ultimately did do, declare there was no interference in fact which just means that having looked at the claims again that correspond to the interfering invention, or what was alleged to be the interfering invention, um, we've looked at it, and the arguments that the road made convinced 
wasn't anything interfering here that permitting the Broad to keep its patent and permitting the University of California to get its patents would not create a situation where you would have uh, two parties owning patents to the same invention. How surprising a result was this? Well, um, it, it's not it's not uh, necessarily frequent, but it, it happens. I've, I've had an experience myself where, where that was what the board um, decided. Um, it's like I said, it's not a perfect process. Usually, it doesn't happen, but it can, and uh, and it did, and it creates has some interesting consequences, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I, I looked at the decision fairly carefully, and it was well reasoned. I think that uh, the Bros did a very good job of asserting its position, but I think that they were they were benefited by the fact that um, the facts and the and the law were on their side, and so I think the board came to the correct decision. If I understood it correctly, one of the things the patent office weighed in this were comments from Jennifer Dudna, one of the UC Berkeley developers of the technology, that it was unclear whether this technology would would work in eukaryote cells. It, it, yeah. Is this something that will have a, a sort of chilling effect on scientists speaking openly and honestly? And if these no. comments can come back that way, no. I, this is a look, this is a very rare. It's one of the things that convinced Congress to change the, our law from first to invent the first to file is the fact that interferences are very rare. Um, if you think about the fact there are, I think we're approaching the 10 millionth patent will be sometime in the next year to 18 months, we'll have about 10 million patents granted. And, you know, they, they've been counted um, sequentially since the first one, signed by Thomas Jefferson in 1790-something. So, you know, this is a, the whole history of our country. We're up to 10 million. I think the latest interference that I was involved in the numbers was 109,000 or 110,000. So, you know, you can see that um, really the percentage of, of cases that get involved in interference is very, very small. So this is really a kind of an unfortunate situation where what Professor Duden said um, turned out to support the Broad's interpretation of why there wasn't interference in fact. And, I, and I'm not sure um, that, that, that your listeners are going to get too deeply into the weeds here. But suffice it to say, there's an interference in fact only if, if you took the the other party's invention and pretended that it was already there, patented, and you ask the question, well, uh, does it anticipate, in other words, does it claim the same thing, or does it render my invention obvious? And you do that with both parties. Well, here the issue was, would it have been obvious, given the original CRISPR uh, invention that the Tudna patent covered, uh, to predict with a reasonable expectation of success that it would work in eukaryotic cells? And... Professor Duden's comments were just part of a great deal of evidence that could been forward that there couldn't have been a reasonable expectation it would succeed. That doesn't mean it wouldn't. doesn't mean it couldn't. But would the expectation have been that it would? And the board decided, no, based on the evidence, there, there wasn't that expectation. How settled is this matter now? Well, I think the good news for the Broad, and I've read a lot of things that say that they've, they've, they won, and they won only to the extent that their patents were, were at risk. If they had, uh, if they had denied the motion, then the board next would have taken all of the evidence, and we were not even close to this stage of the interference yet, taken all the evidence to determine who invented first. And uh, the Broad could have lost some or all of its patents if the board had decided against it. 
So that threat has been removed. Uh, and so I think that, that they must be pretty happy. Um, the University of California can still appeal. And uh, I don't know if they've, they've made noise that they might, but that's up in the air. They have, I think, 60 days to, to uh, appeal. Um, so if, if they don't appeal, if this is so, it's settled in that sense, but uh, it's in, unsettled in another sense as well in terms of what happens now, um, because the University of California should be able to get its patents too. What is the uh, appeals process? What what path would they go if they do choose to appeal? They would well. It's a, it's simple. They would have to file what's called a notice of appeal with the Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit in Washington. It's uh, it's the appellate court, the federal appellate court that handles all patenting matters. And so this is obviously being a patenting matter. They would file the notice, and then the um, the, the court uh, would set deadlines for the briefs that would have to be filed. Um, over a two or three or four month period, the parties would file the briefs. They would have a an oral argument before the the court, and then the court would render a decision of whether or not um, the patent office was correct in deciding there wasn't an interference. In fact, uh, the limitation for California as a university is that um, the evidence that the federal circuit would uh, would have to uh, to review would be the evidence that was in front of the board. There's no additional evidence could be presented, and of course the other thing is that uh, the stand we call the standard of review is that factual matters and factual matters um, or with the basis for the board's decision are given great deference, and so it would be very difficult, I think, for the appellate court to rule against the patent office in this case. Not impossible, but just I, I don't I don't see it happening. Is it surprising to go through this process rather than just reach some type of a negotiated settlement? Well, I think that um, this is all rumor and innuendo, so I don't know if it's true, but, but the rumor is they spent, both parties spent a very, very large sum of money on this. I think that um, typically uh, interferences have provisions by which they can settle, and I mean, I'm I, I'm a lawyer, and so I think that uh, it's I have no no problem with people mixing it up and and, and pursuing their legal options. But uh, to be honest, I, I tell every client it's always cheaper to come to an agreement uh, to settle. And so uh, I think that now, depending upon what happens, whether it's appealed or not, the the, the rational thing to do, and I have a specific reason for saying that, I'll we can get to it in a minute. But the rational thing would be for the parties to get together and settle now. They may not be able to, depending upon the agreements that they've made with, with companies, but, but that would be, the, to me, the rational thing. Is there any sense that the controversy has had any impact on slowing the use of this technology in a commercial application? Well, I think that one thing you have to realize is that, is that uh, the most important use of the technology in the short term uh, is, is academic research use. Because those are in all of these technologies have been developed through academic research um, going back. I think the only one probably wasn't the polymerase chain reaction, uh, which was developed by a company. But many of these things were developed in, in academia, typically by people looking for something else when they found it, which is just the way academic science works. And generally speaking, although there is no formal legalistic um, research exception to infringement, in, in the practical sense, 
companies and patentees don't sue universities. It just doesn't make sense. It's very bad publicity. Um, if if someone wants to uh, make money on something and want to sell it, that's a different story. And, and the most famous case, uh, the Myriad case, uh, a few years ago, uh, the machine patenting case, one of the arguments was the Myriad threatened to sue some doctors. And they, they had many years ago. But the reason was the doctors had put out a shingle and were trying to use their patented method and charge patients for it. And so that's, I think, an anomaly. Typically, uh, people who in academia who use patents you know, aren't really too bothered by uh, threats of infringement because they rarely get them. And uh, academic, frankly, academic science, generally using your technique and showing how wonderful it is, uh, inures to the benefit of the patentee. It just amplifies uh, everybody's understanding of it and, and recognition of it and how powerful it is. And so uh, it's typically commercial interests that will that will be involved. And, I, and they, they need a license. So Does this provide clarity? They used to. Does this provide clarity to biotech enterprises that may want to license the technology? Well, yes and no. Jennifer Duden said something else that uh, A, was very apt, and B, suggests she's been spending too much time on her patent work. <laughs> she, she, said, she said, the Broad now has a, and I'm hoping I'm correct, or quoting her correctly, but it was along these lines. The Broad now has a patent on green tennis balls. University of California will get a patent on tennis balls. And the language of the uh, board's decision was such that she's probably right. And so you have a situation, and it's very common in, uh, in patenting, where someone has a broad, what we call a generic invention, say, use another analogy to a television set, and somebody else comes along and improves it or changes it, uh, say, a color television set. And the funny thing about um, patenting, are there just rights to exclude others from doing what, what or using your invention? And so, someone who wants to use um, CRISPR and eukaryotic cells certainly needs a patent from Broad, or sorry, a license from the Broad on their patent. But there's a reasonably good chance, uh, depending on what the patent office does, and I see no reason to think they won't, that they will also need a license from the University of California. And so, that does complicate things a little bit because um, if there isn't an agreement between the parties, then going to, companies are going to need two licenses and have to negotiate with both parties for the ability to use the technology. The, the other irony here is that in some ways this all may become a bit moot. Do, do you think that other technologies will quickly emerge to replace CRISPR that people will vent around what these patents... What? Well, you know, never say never. I think that this is, uh, you'd have to, you'd have to look at the way it's claimed, but it's claimed pretty well. So, will somebody come along with something else? Probably. Um, will it happen in, you know, in, on the order of 50 years? Certainly. But that means it could happen in five years or, or 100 years. And so, you really can't predict what the next advance is going to be. I certainly think that, um, people using the CRISPR technology, uh, will, become better acquainted with it, will we'll become um, more cognizant of the ways it can be changed, the ways it can be modified and manipulated. And um, yeah, I think that, that there probably will be improvements, but the real question will be, are those improvements still going to fall within the scope of either the Broad's claims or California's claims or both? And in that case, they'll need a license, which is why I think the, the parties should, um, they're kind of both in it together, they should just come to an agreement. Kevin Noonan, partner and chair of the Biotechnology and Pharmaceuticals Practice Group of McDonald, Bowen, Holbert, and Berghoff. 
and founding partner of the Patent Docs blog. Kevin, thanks so much for your time today. Sure, thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.